Dr. James Lindsay has been fighting the global elite's agenda to destroy America. He explains how woke radicals have hijacked our education system to produce citizen activists through racial division, the early sexualization of children, and catastrophic climate change narratives. Is it hyperbole to say that we're going through a dangerous cultural revolution in America? Dr. Lindsay, a professional troublemaker, gives specific tips on how to disrupt the system and defend truth. I'm so glad we get to have this conversation with the cameras on because I have a lot of questions for you. But the most important question I want to start with is, how did you become who you are, James Lindsay? I mean, you have a PhD in mathematics. You've authored so many books, including on education. You're incredibly funny. Uh, you're also incredibly serious and convicted. I know I'm giving you a whole bunch of compliments, but you, you've you earned those compliments. And I'm just wondering, how did you become who you are and how did your career develop into this really multifaceted, interesting work that you do? Well, you're you're encouraged to give compliments as as often as you want. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to start this story. It is true. I have a PhD in math. I have a bachelor's degree in physics, if that is of interest too. So I have this love for the sciences. Got frustrated with how the university was kind of operating with the service level courses. I've told the story a number of times, but you know, if it was like a freshman math class, sophomore math class, the one you have to take just to take a class, not to go into your major, we were told don't fail anybody. The last couple of years I was there, or fail maybe one student tops. Try to make sure people's morale stays up, keep them interested, keep them in school, don't demoralize them, don't lose their scholarships on them because of a class that they had to take that they, it's just a what they call a service level course. And I didn't really wanna take part in this idea that the class was just fake. And we pretend it's serious academia, but it's not. And it's got some grade padding, you know, obviously built in. It was like, give people all the excuses that you could possibly give them, you know, whether it's extra credit opportunities or whatever to get their grade up. And I thought, why do I want to grade more bad work so I can give their grade, a, you know, a boost? I had a professor who used to say, why should I give you an A for more D quality work when people would ask him about extra credit? And I always thought it, you know, that was pretty funny. And it's kind of true. A large volume of D quality work shouldn't get your grade up. And so I got kind of frustrated with academia in general, maybe 2008-ish, seven, eight, nine. And so when I finished my PhD in 2010, I left academia completely. People on the internet are very polite and kind, as you, I'm sure, know. And they tell me frequently that I obviously couldn't get a math job. And I try to, I don't point out to anybody anymore on the internet anything, but I got all the math jobs I applied to, which is zero. Uh, I didn't try to get any. I left academia entirely. And so I decided that, you know, what's the most natural thing for somebody to do who just earned a PhD in mathematics? It's obviously to go to massage therapy school and become a licensed massage therapist. So that's what I did for a decade after I left academia. And Seriously? Yeah. So if your neck's bothering you, let me know. Um, so I can fix that. <laughs> so I did. I was a massage therapist. My license has expired. I didn't renew it after I got busy doing everything I do now. So I'm not licensed to practice anymore, but I used to be. And I got academically bored being, I mean, I loved my work. I was successful at my work. I just needed some academic stimulation. And so I started getting into these kind of philosophy discussion forums on the internet, lots of arguments online. I got caught up in the new atheism movement and was dealing with all that. And that got consumed kind of by this, what we used to call radical third wave feminism. You know, this very radical, uh, 
everybody in the universe is a sexist. Everything you can imagine is misogyny. It was like the Me Too movement before Me Too happened. You know, some girl gets asked out in an elevator. The, she says no. The boy goes away. Somehow that was like rape culture or something, and she had to fear for her life. And, you know, nice hotel, nice event. She spoke. I thought your comments were good. That really happened. It's got a name. Uh, it's called Elevator Gate. You can people can look it up. And everybody's getting accused of it. So I got curious. What in the world? Why are they accusing everybody of sexism and misogyny? And I started to kind of argue with people. People were wrong on the internet. So I argued with them as one does. And I finally got some of these feminists to send me articles explaining what in the world they meant by sexism and misogyny to try to, you know, educate me so I could, you know, do better or whatever. And I read all about it and I got this idea of systemic sexism. And I said, okay. And I went back to the one girl and I said, all right, I get it. Systemic sexism, maybe that's a thing, but you're not accusing people of participating in some system of sexism. You're saying that they are a sexist, which is something people understand differently. Why don't you just specify which one you mean? And she said, they're the same thing. And that's when I started to realize something's really, you know, screwed up in the way that this kind of activist class is operating. It's not being kind of on the up and up with what it means or what it says uh, it, with, with terrible accusations. It could be career-ending accusations and or worse for people. So kind of one thing leads to another, and we start watching the academic literature. A friend of mine named Peter Bogosian and I watching the academic literature. The papers are really crazy that are getting published, particularly in these kind of theoretical humanities, gender studies in particular, we had a keen interest in. I remember seeing a paper in a very, very high-ranked journal in, in gender studies. It's called Gender and Society as a Journal. There's a paper that argued that uh, menstrual blood is a social construct. And I thought, well, that's crazy. And this is just kind of getting past any... any Common sense. Yeah, any range of common sense or sanity. It's like, okay. And so Peter and I get on the phone, we get talking, and then there's this one paper that comes out. We're like frustrated with this. There's this one paper that comes out that argues in the middle of 2016, I guess it was June or July, July, I think, 2016, that argues that the science of glaciology is intrinsically sexist because it doesn't include feminist art projects and indigenous mythologies about glaciers. And so those have to be included or else the science is sexist. And this got published in a very high-ranking journal, got a lot of attention. It was a project out of the University of Oregon. It was operating on just short of half a million dollars of National Science Foundation taxpayer money allocated to the sciences. And Peter and I talked, about, we got on the phone and we said, enough. Uh, and we decided these people are ripe for an academic hoax. We thought they don't know what's true and false. If we just flatter their political beliefs and write a thing about anything that flatters their, their psychotic political beliefs, it puts down men that, you know, says everything socially constructed, then certainly we can get it accepted and, and reveal that the whole thing is fake. And so we started to write a paper at the end of 2016 that we titled The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. We said we should not consider sex the penis as a sex organ because there's trans people who haven't had theirs cut off, so it can't be a male organ if a female trans woman has one. And so it's not best thought of at all as a anatomical organ or reproductive organ, but rather as a social construct that lends itself to male braggadocio, machismo, all this stuff. And it causes most of the problems in society through patriarchy and toxic masculinity, especially it causes climate change. So the penises cause climate change. 
And this. Well, okay, so the, the, okay, I just need to slow down so I comprehend because there's a lot of there's a lot confusion going on here. here. So you guys got a paper published mm-hmm. that makes the claim that the penis causes climate change. Yeah, it causes all of our problems. And it fact. actually got printed and accepted. Like, what does it mean? You you made this paper. Like, who accepted this paper? So that's a yes, but it did get accepted. But there is a but here, and so. We we wrote this paper and we submitted it to, I'll say for, for clarity, an actual masculinities journal uh, called NORMA. I forgot what NORMA stands for, but it stands for something. The M is masculinities. And so we submitted it to this journal and they did not accept the paper, but they said we would love to forward this paper in-house to a sister journal of ours and have them evaluate it. Now, little did we know that we had actually uncovered a genuine academic scandal here. We had a Taylor and Francis, that's the publishing company journal, that did not want the paper. They said they would forward it internally to a sister journal, but that sister journal is actually a predatory journal that is pay to publish. You give them, I think at the time, $1,300, they'll publish whatever you want in an academic journal. And so now you have a real scandal that Taylor and Francis is taking papers it knows are, are inadequate, using existing journals as a vehicle to push them into a money-making scheme that's actually a parasite on academia. And so not really knowing what that was, we just said, yeah, okay. And so we we let them forward it, Cogent Social Sciences being, as it turns out, predatory, accepted the paper with virtually no, uh, no review or anything, and then published it and then sent us an email and said, we forgot to charge you. Will you please pay? <laughs> so we said, no, of course not. And we spiked the football and said, gender studies is fake. Look how stupid they are that they published this. So this is truly an ambiguous case. I don't want to overstate what we we didn't prove much. And so some articles came out and one thing kind of led to another. But they said that if we really wanted to prove our point, we needed to do kind of all these different things, high ranking journals, more than one paper, yada, yada. So Peter and I got on the phone with one another and said, why don't we do that? And so we started off a month or two later in what's called now the Grievance Studies Affair, where rather than writing this one kind of one-off funny paper, we wrote 20 of them over the course of a year and uh, submitted them to high-ranking journals. And we ended up getting a lot of them accepted and a lot of them got published. And a lot of them were still under review when we got caught and had to quit. In the process of that is where kind of all of the changes that you're asking about in terms of how did I become James Lindsay, so to speak, Part of it was that I started to read the literature very seriously in order to replicate it successfully. I started to really understand it and started to understand how dangerous it is and how bad it is. And one of our papers was particularly important because what it was about was education. And we wrote a paper that said we should find out the privilege of the kids. We should do have them do the privilege walk, you know, take two steps forward if you have, you know, two parents in the household take three steps backwards if you're black or whatever the different things are and get the kids in different places and find out what their privilege is. And we said, what we should do is codify that, attach it to the syllabus or to the to the roster, I should say. And then depending on where you fall on the privilege scale, treat the kids differently. That's called a progressive stack of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so we should progressively stack our classrooms. So kids who have, and by the way, we didn't make this idea up. It was yeah. actually a professor at the University of Pennsylvania that got in trouble for doing it. And way back in 2017, when you could get in trouble for doing that. Right now, it's celebrated. It's it's celebrated. So 
we suggested that we're going to do that. But what we're going to do is we're going to invite the most privileged students who would be the white males to listen and learn in silence, to sit in the floor wearing chains, to experience reparations, to be spoken over, interrupted, mistreated, and so on. So we're going to abuse the students, but we'll do it with compassion because we want it to be funny. And they wrote us back, the peer reviewers for the academic journal, which was Hypatia, which is a very uh, famous, actually, academic journal, wrote us back and said, we love the idea. You're right to talk about white fragility as a reason people will object, blah, blah, blah. However, you can't use compassion because you may recenter the needs of the privileged students over the oppressed students and make it about them. And so I was rather alarmed by this idea that we thought that we were writing this paper about abusing students as an educational opportunity. We said they'll never take it unless we say we have to do it compassionately. And then they said compassion is the wrong way. And they recommended these resources into what's called the pedagogy of discomfort. And so that's the idea that you want to take people who are in a position of privilege and make them as uncomfortable as possible, leave them to sit with their discomfort. This is, comes from a book called Feeling Power by Megan Buller uh, from like 99 or something like that. And this will help them overcome their privilege. So literally like thought reform, psychological abuse. And that was the way to go, not compassion. That's terrible. Yeah. So I get on the phone with one of the other guys doing the project with us. About a week later, I sit on it and think about it. And we're talking about it. And we decided the logic of that taken to its conclusion ends in genocide. We're going to have a group of people who are by... Features of like their skin color, their sex, their sexuality are irredeemable. The only thing to do is to abuse them, to try to change them. And you can't use any compassion for their situation whatsoever. And so I asked my wife, uh, I went to her and I asked if I could quit my job, uh, which was the massage therapy, and dedicate my life full time to reading and studying and exposing the woke literature because I said, I think Western civilization ends because of this stuff. And she thought I maybe lost my marbles a little bit. And she, being a practical woman, um, and she is a very practical woman, said, can you make money doing that? And I said, I don't know. And she said, you have 18 months to figure that part out. And uh, in that we're old school and she's really a woman who's actually a woman, 18 months meant 15 months in practice, as we found out 15 months later. But I was very uh, fortunate in being able to, to start figuring out how to make a very modest amount of money. Um, about in that time period and have done nothing but read and study and expose and speak on these issues ever since. Well, the peer-reviewed studies that you've submitted uh, or that have been accepted are a significant project, not because you're exposing all the critical theories, where there's critical race theory, critical gender theory, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the other thing that it exposes is the fact that People believe that if an expert said something and it was peer-reviewed, then it's legitimate, right? Like yeah. we we grew up thinking, well, it's peer-reviewed, it's it's in the There's journal, a study. there is a study, experts yeah. say, right? And what you have been able to prove time and time again through these absolute ridiculous studies, and I, I, we'll bring up the, uh, at, at the end of the conversation another really funny one, which I think people should hear about. Uh, but what you've really been able to prove is that these studies mean squat because they either follow some sort of a narrative that people are begging to hear, even though it's not true, or people can just buy a study. And those things are pretty significant because so many of the things that are impacting our lives are based on these studies. It's horrifying. It's horrific that people don't know this. Yeah, you got to think like, 
okay, so the last line in our society for, you know, if you have a conflict between two people, and I don't mean that they're punching each other, but they have a disagreement, you know, of a substantive nature, the last line is the court. The court is going to decide, well, judges are busy people. The judges are experts in the law and making judgments about the law. They don't know every subject under the sun. They don't know what's going on and say, detailed aspects of gender medicine or whatever. And so what do they do? They have experts come and give expert testimony, file amicus briefs, and so on. Mm. And so if you have a bunch of, say, NGOs out there that are organizing or, or nonprofits organizing where they have experts who are going to show up and testify, expert witness, professional expert witnesses, or that are filing these amicus briefs and they're citing the academic literature, the judge is going to look down this and legislators are on the same kind of list. They're busy. They don't know. They've, they have a lot of things they're dealing with. They're looking down the list and all of a sudden, you know, oh, it says that all this expertise paper was published, blah, blah, blah. Journalists, they say, well, there's a study, you know, they cite the studies in the academic literature. Journalists are busy people. They don't necessarily know every subject they write about in detail. This is a well-known problem within science journalism, particularly as they get the point all wrong. And so what you have is the ability to point to the study and the fact of the study and our belief in the study or the expert connected to the studies. And you can, we, we call this idea laundering. You can launder mm. prejudice and opinion and activism in as though it's knowledge, as though it's, you know, truth, truth, and then build society off of this corruption rather than building it off of truth. And this is exactly what has happened in our entire professional class, whether it's in businesses, whether it's, you know, the HR departments and everything else, the CEOs are like, well, what is it about? You know, lawyers are like, well, there's exposure here because, and it's just line after line after line after line of bogus studies that have um, misled our professional classes. And of course, the one group I didn't talk about yet that's of relevance of teachers, mm -hmm. teachers picked that, well, it's, there's a study. You know, their job is to teach material. There's a study. It says this. One of the papers we wrote, actually, the fake papers, was about masculinity. And one of it's just a preposterous paper. And one of the peer reviewers wrote back, I could see this study being the basis for a graduate level course in masculinities. And so it was right there in black and white. We could have built an entire graduate school or graduate course of study based off of this paper we literally made up. And so... You know, you have to really start to wonder what's being taught in the schools, what's happening with our professional class. They don't have time to go learn every subject for themselves. I think judges and legislators and journalists are probably the most important there. And then they're teaching this stuff as though it's knowledge when it's laundered prejudice, opinion, and activism. Uh, so it's a, it's a real crisis in terms of what we know and what we don't know. I get all the time now people come to me and say, well, 97% of climate scientists yeah. agree. And I'm like, so... Okay, so, you know, you're going to tell me that like, yeah, well, what if what if there's manufactured consensus there? there I have a lot of reasons for doubt all of a mm -hmm. sudden about manufactured consensus. We just lived through it with public health. We saw a lot of manufactured consensus. You know, the meme says, of course, all the scientists agree when you censor the ones who don't, you know, and so this turns out to be a major problem when it's our academic literature, which our society has for 50 or 60 years taken as the gold standard of, you know, determining what is and is not true. It's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, we've been experiencing it here at PragerU because we trying to give multiple perspectives on climate and climate catastrophe and, and then the media, of course, whether it's the New York Times or NPR or any of the folks that are, you know, writing hit pieces on us, they'll use these expert 
uh, journals to say that we're creating misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. 97% of climate scientists agree that you know the world is coming to an end. Yeah. Anything on gender is another massive issue. You yeah. know, what is a woman? What is a man? Queer, all of that yeah. stuff. How did we get to a point where so many things that make no sense, right? It 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 makes no sense have become part of the mainstream narrative. How did we get here? Well, I think a lot of it does have to come back to the to the universities. So something that the activists have understood for a very long time, and this is sometimes referred to as the long march through the institutions. Um, it was laid out by a Italian Marxist in the 1920s and 30s, Antonio Gramsci. He said that that when you have a culture, say like American culture or Western culture, it's very robust. Its cultural institutions reproduce the culture. So what you have to do is, if you want to change the cultures, get inside and change them from within. And he laid out five areas, Gramsci did, of cultural production that need to be taken over from within and start to be redirected. And he said that the five most important, in his opinion, were religion, family, education, media, and law. And so he put some special emphasis on education because what the activists have understood, at least since the 60s, is that everything in the professional world is downstream from education. If you want to be a doctor, you're going to go to medical school after you go to college. If you want to be a lawyer, you're going to go to law school after you go to college. If you're going to be a journalist, you're probably going to go get a four-year degree in journalism. If you're going to be a, it doesn't matter, a teacher, you're going to go to teacher's college. And they realized, and they explicitly said that they realized in the early 1970s, that if you want to change the course of society, you need to get into education at all levels and you need to train the next professional class. Well, if you have an apparatus that's at the university that's rewarding just publishing papers and journals, and you have a apparatus that's been built to build up journals that are bogus, um, which as it turns out was pioneered by Robert Maxwell, that's the academic publishing model we all run on, just because it's fun to say, and we all love a good conspiracy theory. Robert Maxwell has a very famous daughter named Jelaine. Uh, <laughs> As it turns out, he's the guy who came up with the model of academic publishing that we use now, which created the publisher parish model of academia, where it's the number of papers that you publish determine, can you be hired? Can you get tenure? Can you get career advancement? So the entire careerist apparatus in, in academia is built around the idea of publishing. We could get into how the journal system works. It's another matter, but the libraries will buy any journal that a professor asks for. So there's a business model for it. That's what Maxwell came up with. And so now you have the system to where the universities have been able to increasingly bring in activists who write activist things as though they're legitimate journal articles. They can get a journal incorporated. They can get it under a major academic publisher, and they can get a market for it by getting university libraries to pick it up. Meanwhile, there is another deliberate push to start hiring more and more and more people in academic departments who actually had activist leanings. And by this means, they were able to start taking over academic not just to whole departments, but to kind of the whole academic process and to create generations of professionals. In 1972, in a book called um, Counter-Revolution and Revolt, the leading neo-Marxist thinker of the 60s and 70s, whose name was Herbert Marcuse, wrote that it, we have to go into the, the professions, he said. We have to go be computer programmers. We have to go into education at all levels. We have to go into the professions and we have to bring our ideology with us. We have to change them from within through what Rudy Deutschke called the long march through the institutions. And so they understood that if they wanted to change society 
after the radicalism of the 60s failed, that they were going to have to go in and transform institutions. Well, you start getting the media, you start getting lawyers, you start getting doctors, you start getting the entire kind of political class, all the professional classes, the educators all saying the same thing for 50 years or 30 years, at least the last 30. Turns out, just starts to be what people believe is true. And all of a sudden, you can take the entire apparatus of what we believe and shift it over to stuff that's completely without basis because you've created an artificial basis for it starting in the university system, starting in the education system from there and spreading out into all of the professions. After that point, I mean, what are people supposed to believe? How many people are supposed to go do their own research where who knows how many scientists haven't been able to get their papers published if they disagree? But the news just comes on on TV and it tells them, oh, yeah, you know, hottest summer we've ever had. Haven't you noticed how hot it is? Your phone pops up. And I got notifications all summer. More heat than usual. The weather map is all red, even though we had an abnormally kind of cool summer where I was for the majority of it. Um, still heat warning, heat warning, heat warning every day. Subjective sense as well. It seems yeah. really hot. And you can get people to believe things that aren't true through a combination of propaganda and getting largely the professional class to back that up and the media to repeat it all the time. Sure, we saw it in California. Hurricane's coming, hurricane coming, don't leave, don't do anything, shut down all your businesses. And yeah. then people are like, what? A leaf didn't even come off my tree. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, you talk about the washers, which is the schools, the yeah. education systems. And I remember this also being an educator myself, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I got a master's in education. I went through the degree. And I, I remember having you know, pretty strong fights with with my professors about I, I I wasn't political at the time. I didn't quite understand that this is the politicization of the classroom. Yeah. Uh, but I had a sense of something going on like, mm -hmm. the, you know, SEL felt like a Trojan horse to me. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't quite understand how to define it as Marxism. And, you know, after reading your book, which I really recommend every parent should read because it really will help you avoid getting gaslit, which is what I think most parents are experiencing oh, yeah. right now. You know, reading your book and just going back into what I experienced getting a master's in education and being a teacher and even speaking to other teachers you know, I realized that there has been a, a real push to turn our kids into political activists rather than strong academics. That's right. Can you just give me a quick survey of how did this happen? Yeah, actually, it turns out I can. So there's a book that's really helpful for decoding this. There's a guy, his name is Isaac Gottesman. He used to be, I found out that he's no longer there at the Iowa State University. Um, in 2015, he wrote a book called The Critical Turn in Education. And in that book, he lays out a history of how our education system got turned to what they do now, which is called critical pedagogy. Mm. The first sentence of the book, it says, where did all the 60s radicals go? And then immediately he says, not to the religious cults, which is weird, not to yuppiedom, but to the classroom. And so all of the radicals from the 60s started to infiltrate according to that long march to the institution's plan. And the main place they all moved was education. If we can't change the culture directly, we're going to change the culture by changing the kids, by changing the schools. So the strategy is, is if you capture the colleges of education, you capture the teachers. And if you capture the teachers, you capture the students. And if you capture the students, you get the future. And so that was the, the long strategy that they started to employ. Well, this was kind of faltering through the 1970s. They, they didn't have a whole lot of success. There was a lot of kind of experimental classrooms. And in most places, they didn't catch on. They didn't do very well. 
Then you have this one in the late 70s, this one activist, Henry Giroux. Henry Giroux is frustrated outright communist teacher. He's in Rhode Island at the time. He's trying to do like the talk circles in the room instead of having the desks in rows. His principal's always giving him heat for it. He gets extremely frustrated one day and he's just about to quit. He just can't stand it anymore. He has this model of education in his mind he wants to wants to produce and the, pr- the principal won't let him do it. And I think it's Barrington, Rhode Island, a high school there. And so he had just been given a copy of a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. And so he takes this book and he, like a week before, and he reads it all one night, has a religious, if you read his own description of it, he had a religious conversion experience, becomes manic. This is the answer. This tells me everything. You know, it doesn't sleep for a couple days. He rushes back to the principal. He's like waving the book in his face. He's like, this is it. This is the vocabulary I need Mm -hmm. to be able to make my, you know, democratic classroom or whatever it is, is he wants to call it. And his principal kind of shuts him down again. He ends up in grad school, I think at Boston. I always get mixed up because there's university and college. I think Boston University, but it may be Boston College. And he's in grad school. Actually, no, he's, he's going for a professorship in the College of Education there. And he gets denied tenure right during the same week that Paulo Freire comes to visit to speak in Is Boston. that the Brazilian philosopher? The Brazilian yeah. philosopher is a nice way to put it. He was a Marxist. He was <laughs> a Marxist, Marxist education theorist. And so... He strikes up a conversation with Paulo, and he goes on a mission. He called it his most important praxis to get activists or really Marxists tenured in colleges of education across North America. And between the late 1970s and 1984, he successfully got over 100 faculty members tenured at different colleges of education across North America. And you have to start thinking, how many faculty of education are there? Not that many. I mean, a few thousand, maybe. He got 100 personally, him alone, pushed through into tenured faculty positions. So in 1985, Paulo Freire has a new book come out. It's called The Politics of Education. He's largely been ignored up to this point. A very favorable review was written for this book in the Harvard Education Review. And Giroux and others went kind of full tilt sending it to the people that they had got tenured and they started to get Paulo Freire's methods taken up in colleges of education. So that's 1984 and five. So that Isaac Gottesman records later in the first chapter of Critical Turn in Education, he says, so that Paulo Freire arrived where he is today, which is to say everywhere in colleges of education, essentially by 1992. So through the late 1970s, through the early 1990s, the decade of the 80s, in total, there is an enormous push by activists posing as teachers and as college of education professors to get more and more of themselves in colleges of education and to adopt a very radical pedagogy movement as the basis, as like the standard for educational theory and practice. And it was extremely deliberate so that by 1992, it would be fair to say, at least in their own estimation, that they had captured the institution of colleges of education and started to use that to produce new generations of teachers who would produce new generations of students and be kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. You create radical teachers, they create a few radical students, radical students go to be the next group of people who want to come be radical teachers, and you end up creating basically a farm program in the colleges of education for extremely radical uh, teachers. And that was in 92, so 30 years down the road, few generations down the road in terms of the kind of the academic turnover. 
you see what, what the result right, is. They Recall, kept bubbling up and, right. and, and growing and growing. Can you explain what their philosophy actually is? What is it that they believe so strongly in? What you call them radical. They probably say that they're they're doing good. No, oh, yeah. Uh, do they think they're doing good? Or they, they're not like trying to destroy America. They just believe in bad things. No, they're trying to destroy America. So they do believe in trying to destroy America they believe through their activist agenda. Paulo Freire believed explicitly in cultural revolution and perpetual cultural revolution, as a matter of fact, that the existing society, whatever it is, is inherently oppressive. And so you have to have a radical revolution for liberation from the existing society. So when these people have picked him up, the existing society here is America. We need liberation from America, which means they are not in favor of America. They'll say that they're pro-America, but they have a vision for a different America that's maybe not even based in the Constitution. It's like, I love you, but I want to change absolutely everything about you. Yeah, exactly. I love the idea of you as I have constructed it in my head, and we're going to change you to match that idea is, is really the, the model. And so when I say that they're radicals, they are, they are Marxist radicals of one form or another who have decided that their mission is to liberate our society from its pre-existing modes and to use children that they're radicalizing in turn at school as the vehicle to do it. Now, it's worth pointing out at this point then, where did Paulo Freire get these crazy ideas? Yeah, he was a Marxist. Yeah, he was, you know, in radical post-colonial circles in Brazil. And yeah, he got into liberation theology and he studied with the so-called Red Bishop of Recife named Dom Elder Camara and had all of these kind of very radical Marxist beliefs. Uh, then he went and stayed and studied Marxism very heavily through the 1960s before he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. But he also says in a footnote of Pedagogy of the Oppressed that the model that he advocates for is based off of the very successful model he's witnessed in Mao's China. So the Maoist re-education mm -hmm. model that Mao Zedong used at that point, we have to guess through the 1950s would be the information that Paulo probably would have had uh, access to, which was a deliberate brainwashing method through the schools, was the model that he was using for his, his education theory, which got picked up by these 60s radicals who chanted things in the street, like, I don't know if you knew their chant that they chanted in the 60s, which was Mao, or is it Marx Mao Marcuse? Marx Mao Marcuse. Wow. And so Mao, they were Maoists. And so Maoists went into the education system, American Maoists, who believed in Mao and believed in the Cultural Revolution went in. And then here we have a guy who finds the philosophy, the education philosophy based off of Mao, elaborated out and plugs it into the system. And of course it worked. That's exactly what those radicals that infiltrated education were looking for in the first place. Now, what they would say that they're about, not just liberating from the existing system, is that a true education is necessarily a political education because otherwise the existing political system is mystifying you into keeping it going. So America confuses or brainwashes kids into wanting to be Americans and to keep America alive. And so that's a brainwashing program. And so what you're actually going to do is teach them uh, that the real point of education is to teach them the true concrete reasons behind their, their circumstances. And so you use the educational material as an excuse to talk about the political ramifications that they experience in their lives and use those specifically to radicalize them against the existing system in order to bring about cultural revolution. Is that why the focus is less on academics and when they're teaching, let's say, literacy or they're teaching math, it's always through the lens of, 
Well, here are the current events that we need to talk about right now and the change in the activism that we need to encourage the students to engage in. I mean, I remember that. I remember when we were exposed to teach literacy, it was like, okay, well, let's choose a book that the kids would relate to about what's happening in the culture so that they'll enjoy reading it. But truly, it was brainwashing of left-wing politics, even in literacy. And so the parents are gaslit because they're thinking, oh, this is just a literacy class. The kids are just learning how to how to read English, right? Or this is just a math class. They're just calculating. But suddenly they sneak in all of this, you know, generative lesson planning. You know, talk about that So generative is the Paulo Freire idea is that you use in education are generative themes, he said, which are themes that are relevant to to the lives of the learners. And you use the generative theme as an excuse to generate a political discussion about the issue. And you use the political discussion to generate academic interest so that they'll want to study the subject. The idea is, well, if it's more engaging, you know, if the book is about something relevant to their lives, if it's culturally relevant, if it's politically relevant, Mm. they'll be more excited or interested, like Mm -hmm. you just said, they'll be more engaged, and that'll make them want to read or want to learn math. Classic seventh, eighth grade. But what Frady says is very explicit, and this is why I call it, the subtitle of the book says, The Theft of Education, Mm. because they've stolen, what I describe in this book is how they stole the mechanism of education. They also stole the purpose of education, but that's a separate issue. They stole the mechanism of education. So what they do is they use, this is Paulo Frady's idea and his words, is that the academic lesson, the literacy lesson, is a mediator to political literacy or to political lessons, to political knowledge. And so what that would be would be that the reading lesson is just an excuse to set up either a political book for them to read or a chance to have political conversations. Uh, We see with the Drag Queen Story Hour, for example, this word generative. They wrote a paper called Drag Pedagogy. They explain what Drag Queen Story Hour is all about. Who are they? Well, a trans educator and a drag queen that's actually pushing the program who goes by Lil Miss Hot Mess. And so they write this paper and they say that Drag Queen Story Hour is a generative method Mm -hmm. to bring kids into uh, queer ways of knowing and being, living queerly, alternate modes of kinship. I get in trouble for the okay groomer thing. I still struggle and I challenge people to find a better word than groomer for preparatory introduction to uh, alternate modes of kinship and living queerly, which is a direct quote for what they say the goal is of Drag Queen Story Hour. But it's a generative method. It's meant to generate, it's an excuse to mediate a political conversation. Who is building all of this? I mean, how I feel like it has gone so much worse. I do remember 20 years ago that this was an issue. I remember having arguments with my professors when I was getting my you know, education degree. But it feels like over the last five years, are we just more aware of it because of the lockdowns? Or have they gotten so much more bold about it? It just feels like it's gotten worse, especially with the early sexualization in classroom. Like the gender stuff, it just feels very, very aggressive. Is there a group that is like pushing all of this? Is just is it a culture that has just gone bonkers because they've been they've gone through the washer, the brainwashing for so many years that they actually believe in it as like their own religion. And so now they're just propagating it like. Uh, who is behind this and why? Well, I mean, there's an easy answer to that question, but we'll give the hard hard way to get there. We have the colleges of education are teaching this as that's just good teaching. This is what good teaching is supposed to look like. I put that in quotes, by the way, because that's the title of one of the original papers describing culturally relevant teaching. That's Mm -hmm. just good teaching. So the idea of doing this is what it just means to be a good teacher 
as they are teaching people in the colleges of education. So you have a lot of people coming out of the college of education learning this. What I just, the example I just gave is from a professional development course for teachers. So you have the pressure from the teachers, not all of whom buy into it. A lot of them see through it. A lot of them just have to keep their jobs. A lot of them do the best they can. Some of them fight back against it. But there's more than that. The teachers unions are all invested in this. Uh, they're deeply invested in this. So they're steering all of the kind of apparatuses and education under their power in that direction. Uh, but is there a single organization that's really heavily pushing it besides, say, the teachers unions? Yes, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, which President Trump took us out of and Joe Biden put us back into, uh, is coordinating an awful lot of this in, in concordance with the fourth sustainable development goal, which is quality education for all, and in specific target number 4.7, which is a whole paragraph of all the wokest stuff you can imagine being the center point of education. So UNESCO, in, facil in facilitating the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals of Agenda 2030, which sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's on all their websites, so probably is not, is actually kind of the main organizing body, especially when you talk about the sexualization of children. Comprehensive sexuality education is the program for that. That was developed at UNESCO in 2003 in conjunction with the International Planned Parenthood Foundation and a German institute called the Guttmacher Institute. And they are the primary creators and pushers of a good deal of this. So there is a kind of very organized push that goes kind of right to the top of, you know, international bureaucracy that is pushing education in this direction. They're very explicit about it. Their goal is to have education for what they call global citizenship. They define global citizenship in education as being in line with the 17 sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030. That's actually the definition they give in their own words for what it means to be a global citizen is supporting this agenda. And so you're going to have education for sustainable development and you have UNESCO having put out white papers, picking the, all of these pieces up, saying that all colleges higher education institutions across the world need to be fully em enmeshed in achieving the sustainable development goals. They mention, of course, goal four, quality education for all, and 4.7 specifically a lot. They put out papers talking about the necessity of social-emotional learning to overcome the uh, cognitive dissonance that arises from teaching kids to be activists instead of giving them a genuine education, to teach them to manage their emotions, uh, teach them to deal with the sometimes inherently contradictory nature of the goals, so they know that they're, they're giving a brainwashing and the kids aren't responding well to it. And so social emotional learning is a tool that this is promoted by UNESCO, by the way, in their pale or what's it called? The blue dot publication, SEL for SDGs is the title of the article. You can look that up by title uh, and read it yourself is it, they know social emotional learning is a set of tools to overcome the mental issues that arise from brainwashing kids in school. And they aren't at all shy about what their purpose for all of it is. And uh, it is to achieve these, this Agenda 2030 with its with its goals and to get the kids to become the primary vectors for doing it. The National Education Association Foundation has already created a model curriculum in line with the sustainable development goals for all K through 12, all 13 grades. Starts mm -hmm. off with kindergarten. What is hunger? Is your theme for kindergarten. So you're going to teach kids about starvation, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of emotional, if you read it, yeah, it's all emotional, manipulative, generative education. That's exactly right. And of course, all of this is tied up with Paulo Freire. Whether you read from the Handbook of Social Emotional Learning, which has a foreword by a woman named Lyndon Darling Hammond, who I'll come back to in just a second, because there's a political side to this story too. But she writes in there that 
in the foreword of this book, she is kind of the leading light, if you will, of social emotional learning in the country. She was part of the Obama and Biden education transition teams. Um, well, she writes that that her entire view of what a social emotional learning equipped school is, is one that's in line with Paulo Freire's model of transformation and humanization. In other words, Marxism. So it's right there at the heart of the whole thing. Now, politically, there's a reason we see more of it now. Mm. Partly this whole UN initiative started in 2003. So we're 20 years into it. That's roughly how long it takes for these things to matriculate out. But there's a more direct reason. We had George W. Bush and he had this concept called No Child Left Behind. And what this did was establish through the Department of Education lots of new reporting standards, primarily for teachers. In order to know whether we're leaving kids behind, we're going to test them more, grade the schools through failing schools to A, A, B, C, D, F schools. And we're going to have reporting standards for what the teachers are doing to make sure that they're preparing students so that no child is left behind. And of course, No Child Left Behind is a, explicitly a equity-based initiative yeah. that nobody heard at the time. It, jokingly, sometimes they're called No Child Gets Ahead because in practice, that's what it actually ends up having to be because that's how equity always works. Equity always equalizes downward, not upward. It's just not possible to equalize upward. One wishes, but we don't live in a, in a utopia. So No Child Left Behind gets replaced very controversially with Common, common core. core. And everybody focuses on the crazy curriculum, and not for bad reasons, but it's not the crazy curriculum that really is the big punchline of Common Core. The big punchline of Common Core is that the teacher reporting went through the roof. If you want to get federal money from the Department of Education for your school, the teachers had to fill out three times as much paperwork. They have to report on all of these different initiatives and what they were doing, how they were meeting this, how they were meeting educational standards. It was teacher reporting that went through the roof for academic standards with Common Core, according to the program that was laid out, if you want federal money. Well, in 2015, through the lobbying of Linda Darling-Hammond herself, this got switched from Common Core to social-emotional learning because they passed something called the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, or ESSA. ESSA passes in 2015, and one of it's a, it's a bill about that thick to read it, and I have not read it. But one of the provisions within ESSA is that the reporting for teachers, if they want federal money, has to expand out of just academic competencies and into a broader suite of competencies that can include social and emotional competencies. So all of a sudden, the school, in order to receive federal money, has to be a provider of social and emotional intervention or maybe mental health in some regard. And CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning, has at this point, I guess that was 2015, it was incorporated in 1995, so 20 years in, as a huge amount of ready-to-go materials. One of its people, Linda Darling-Hammond, uh, goes out and you know lobbies for the bill, and they just go from school to school to school. We know how bureaucratic structures work. Once they let something in, it's never getting out, and they say, you have all these new boxes you have to check for the federal government if you want your money. Here's a program that helps you check them off. So in 2016, they started to mainline the social-emotional learning programs into the schools. All of these checking off the competencies of uh, all of this kind of social and emotional stuff, not just the academic stuff, became a requirement for federal money. It got tied to federal money. Then, of course, they put it all on overdrive when they closed the schools for COVID Mm -hmm. and basically revamped the mission and, and, and goals of the schools. But those are the that's the timeline. The reason we're seeing it come to fruition now is because the legal apparatus that ties it to federal money 
was initialized in 2015 and a group that lobbied for that took full advantage of it and installed it according to their own bragging in up to 99% of American school districts right now. So there's 14,000 school districts in America roughly and 99% of them use CASEL certified social emotional learning, which is all rooted back in Paulo Freire's transformational method, humanism, and is tied directly to these initiatives out of things like UNESCO. Are the funds mostly going through the Department of Education, which is basically an extension of the teachers' unions? Uh, a lot of it, the funds are, yeah. It, some of it's more direct. They're using mm -hmm. CARES Act money from, from COVID. Mm. There's ESSER money. Um, but the Department of Education is kind of the, uh, the hub. The great conductor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the supplementary material or the textbooks are are laced with all of this leftism, and that's what they're approving. I mean, that's what we're trying to fight here at PragerU. We're trying to make alternatives. So rather than grabbing yeah. Scholastic or any of these other books that people are grabbing, give them something that's clean, patriotic, and not effectively not Marxist. That's all we're asking for. Yeah, right. I think people really have a hard time grasping how dangerous social-emotional learning is. And you know, I, I actually have friends and colleagues who share our values and are not Marxist, but they feel very strongly that social emotional learning is very important because we want our children to be social and have, you know, balanced emotions. And that's part of what they're doing to us with, with these words, right? They're manipulating us with language. And, you know, there's nothing scarier than being a parent, right? It's it's scary. You you have these little ones that you're responsible for and you want to do the best for them. And so when these experts and these institutions are telling you that your children need to have access to social emotional learning, otherwise they're not going to be able to make it in life, then you don't know what to do by but to listen. Yeah. Uh, but I've experienced, you know, firsthand myself and and I've spoken to many, many teachers who have said to me that through the guise of SEL, that's where you can find critical race theory. That's where you can find the gender fluidity content and all the things that are really scaring us. I mean, obviously it's not just an SEL and you know we talked about how it's you know, in, in literacy, like the anti-racist literacy curriculum that yeah. has made it into schools. But the SEL component is really dangerous. And I think also really um, prevents the parent from understanding that they have a responsibility yeah. to provide those social emotional lessons yeah. and scaffolding with their children. It, yeah. It's really saying to parents, you know, let the UN, let the government, let them raise your children all you, you know, let them teach them everything they need to know about Marxism and activism. Yeah. And all you have to do is feed them and bathe them. And, and should you disagree with what the big government tells you that needs to be taught, we will take your parental rights away. And now I think we're coming to this point where, you know, it is starting to feel like there's a cultural revolution. I, I don't think that it's a hyperbole when you mention China. I really don't. And I think my, some people might say, oh, my God, you guys are exaggerating. We know this is not the CCP here. But it sure feels very similar to the cultural revolution that we we study about. The CCP is involved. But even if the CCP was not involved, there were Maoists in America that were in, in support of what Mao was doing, that studied Mao's methods and wanted to replicate those in the United States. And they found ways to do it. The parallels to the cultural revolution in China for what we're going through in America today are so shocking. I mean, we could spend an, an hour talking about them very easily. Uh, the, they're just simply undeniable that what we're going through is a cultural revolution. Cultural revolution uses a radicalized youth 
in service to the ideology for Mao. It was Maoism in particular that Mao was like, you know, the grand king of the universe or whatever, and uh, the the right chairman of, of China. And he used the Cultural Revolution to depose his political enemies in the CCP. But from Mao's formula that is, he called it unity, criticism, unity, uh, to the use of identity politics with good classes of people and bad classes of people, and all of the, the, the psycho and social dynamics used to push people into the radical activist classes, the parallels are absolutely undeniable that that's, that's what we're going through. And the education system has been setting that up and reaffirming that. Uh, it, it's, it's no joke. It's no exaggeration. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to elaborate, want me to elaborate on those things, I, I certainly can. Well, I want to talk about the, the two most dangerous things that I've noticed recently that are taught in schools. One is the gender blur, right? The gender affirming care. And the other one is this concept of degrowth, which really ties into the whole climate change narrative and the type of attacks that people are experiencing when they bring up an alternative perspective on climate. I mean, we've experienced it here at PragerU viciously, but I've spoken to many other scientists who, if they dare to go against the 97% concept, I'll call it concept because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lie. It's a bogus claim, but it is so deep in education. And, you know, I oftentimes have to admit that even I, when I taught uh, many years ago, I taught Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth because yeah. I had no idea. I thought that as long as I don't hate the climate and hate hate the earth, then I have to teach that there is climate catastrophe. And that idea has evolved into this new concept of degrowth, which could not be more dangerous. I mean, I think this actually puts America at an existential threat. Even the name degrowth should tell you something very bad is happening here. But it's actually the full name of it is degrowth communism. I'm reading a book by a Japanese Marxist right now. It's called Toward an Idea of Degrowth Communism. Marx and the Anthropocene is the title of the book. And he's talking about how this was really originally Marx's idea and the ideas that like the Soviet Union and China were going to build this great, you know, technocratic state that would run everything. That's all Promethean and that's not really going to work. And the real thing is that we've actually got to degrow our economies. We've got to shrink the GDP. We've got to shrink, uh, you know, populations even. We've got to shrink everything back to a manageable level, at which point it can enter into what they call a managed circular economy that, I guess, consumes its own waste. Make whatever of that you will. This is a, a farce. This isn't going to work. But they think that they're, what they're teaching is that there's an inevitable catastrophe coming. It's what Marx called metabolic rift. And if we don't degrow everything soon, we're going to degrow, we're going to get forced to degrow by a collapse of the ecosystem, a collapse of our, uh, you know, ability to extract resources, whether it's energy, whether it's minerals, whether it's the biosphere or whatever else. And so it's definitely a catastrophic alarmist view, but you'll notice that they can say the words in China, but China's building coal plant after coal plant after coal plant, largely so they can power factories to build electric vehicle parts to ship to the West while we're dealing with news in the West telling us, well, they don't work when it's really cold and they don't work when it's really hot. So maybe we just need to get rid of cars. The idea is actually that they're going to encourage the rise of China and then shrink the United States in order to avoid what's called Thucydides trap. This kind of is a lot of baggage to bring up. Thucydides talked about the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. As Sparta rose as a growing power, the dominant power of Athens was challenged. And Thucydides said that this circumstance of a rising power and an existing dominant power 
is a trap that always ends in war. And so the question has been, how do we build up China, but avoid the war? And this has been the kind of global operating question for 50 years is a big Henry Kissinger project. Mm. By the way, Henry Kissinger had two primary protégés. One of them is Hillary Clinton, as people pretty well know. The other is Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum that people tend not to know that uh, actually Klaus's mentor at Harvard was Henry Kissinger. But the goal is how do we let China build and then how do we avoid the inevitable war of a rising power coming up against a dominant power? Oh, you degrow the dominant power so that when the point of war comes, it's too weak to be able to fight, knows it is, and passes the, the baton to China. And so you can see that this is a wholesale program of not, you say it's a national security threat or existential crisis. Yeah, it's, it's a wholesale intentional suicide of the West in order to not end up in a war with China as we artificially manufacture the conditions of Chinese strength. Um, we have to hamper the West, degrow the West in order to not uh, end up in a war with China for global dominance. We just have to weaken ourselves and give it away. Right. Which, by the way, if you've read The Strange Death of Europe, it's Douglas Murray, yeah. or more importantly, if you've read uh, Sartre's foreword to The Wretched of the Earth, which is Franz Fanon's post-colonial book from 1962, Sartre says that that's what the Europeans have to do. You, they're coming for you. They're going to murder you. You might as well give it away and hope they don't murder you. And if you look at foreign policy in, the, in Europe for the last 60 years since that was written, it seems like they followed that roadmap Exactly. Well, this is basically the roadmap that they're trying to lay out for the United States and the rest of the Five Eyes nations is for us to intentionally weaken and shrink ourselves, make ourselves weak and impoverished so that as China rises, there's no war. And that's the game that they're playing with us. Of course, that turns us into vassal states of the CCP in the long run, which is really not good. Why would the leadership of America want to weaken its own country? I mean, is it that they're just manipulated? Are they bought out? Are they just stupid? They're Are they kicking the can down the road because they want to do what's popular right now? I mean, that would be like my first guess is this whole degrowth thing, which I want to clarify, ties into this climate change narrative. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, the world is coming to an end, and so we should not consume fossil fuels we should ride our bikes to work. We should just degrow they reinvented and just go sailboats. back to a hundred years ago. Yeah. Right. Like go back to live like the way people lived a hundred. Like, I don't know who wants to do that on their own. Maybe they want other people to do it, but it's like, let's have other people live like cavemen again so that we save the planet. Right. Yeah. It, it obviously makes no sense, except for, for some reason, the dominant media and our educational institutions are basically teaching people this stuff and they they're brainwashed enough to believe it. Yeah. But why would our leadership want to do this to America? Because they're afraid of wars or they just want to take America down. I mean, I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's the claim. The question is harder than that. I don't think that we can say that they're stupid. Some of them may have been naive. It seems like at some point the international business community realized that there was a wealth of money to be made in China. After Mao Zedong died, his successor's name is Deng Xiaoping, which is a name we don't mention in uh, America far often enough. We don't know who he was, but he had, he's the one where they opened up the market in China. His saying was, I don't care if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. So what he had was how do we get Chinese – The China was in shambles after Mao – it was at the point of collapse. How do we get Chinese strength back? He doesn't care whether you use a socialist or a capitalist means to do it as long as it gets China back up to speed. But he always said that the whole point was for the glory of socialism, which was going to be his objective, was to 
move socials and forward. So maybe we have to in- include, you know, a capitalist looking market within China to do that. So he made deals uh, immediately after he took power. Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum made connections to uh, Deng Xiaoping. He tried to get Klaus or Klaus tried to get Deng to come to the Davos meeting in something like 1978, like or 79, very early in Deng's power. Deng said no, but they set up a a World Economic Forum meeting once annually in China instead. He sent delegates to Davos, but then they went to China. Kissinger, of course, was over there trying to make deals. The business community probably realized that if China opens it up, there is a wealth of money to be made. Nike doesn't care about America because most of its business is in China. Mm. We've seen with the NBA, they're bigger in China than they are in the United States, so they don't particularly care about the U.S. They make more money in China. Well, the only way that they can play that game is by being, you know, satisfactory to the Chinese government. That's if we just want to take a kind of a naive look. Maybe they thought we can change China through this and we'll mm-hmm. win. Wrong. Vivek Ramaswamy's put that that case forward very well. Maybe they just were thinking we can get rich. Whatever happens, happens. I don't know. But at the end of the day, what they, they ended up falling into was a trap where there is an enormous amount of money to be made making deals that way. The the most cynical of the interpretations is, in fact, that our leadership had been infiltrated very thoroughly by Marxists who are working in league with the CCP and or with the International Communist Party in order to try to facilitate this change. We might suggest, for example, because he was inviting known communists to speak at Davos in front of business leaders, like Dom Eller Camara, who I mentioned before, who was a mentor of Freddy. He was also, it turns out, Klaus Schwab's spiritual leader spoke at Davos in 1973 or four, and uh, he was inviting communists, and he had this mentality there that maybe there's more communism that was actually happening in these big moving and shaking deals than anybody knew all along. Maybe there was already ideological lineup to try to hand over the reins to to the CCP and to Asia as, as things progress. So I don't know what their motivations are for sure. I don't claim to you know, speak for people who I'm sure their motivations from person to person vary. Uh, I do know that with with the, the money question itself answers a lot of it. There's a ton of money to be made there. And uh, why be loyal? Hmm. Why be loyal to the United States if there's a ton of money to be made in China? So what? Do you think it also ties into the, the whole global citizenship thing where oh, sure. they don't necessarily feel, you know, national pride for America. They're they're worldwide citizens and they have businesses all around the world. Well, yeah. I mean, the logic of these kind of uh, multinational mega corporations is that, you know, business is global. So we're global. And where's the money? Well, where are the markets? Let's just work with that. And I mean, it's really cynical to say, and I don't think that most of them had that attitude to begin with. But if, you know, everything really gets bad, if you're wealthy enough, why not just pick up and move to Shanghai? You don't have to be tied to this if you have means, this being the United States. Um, and I, I, you get far enough down chasing the money and it becomes very difficult to get out of that that, right. that position. But it is the truth about how a lot of institutions, especially nonprofits, get captured. They get large grants from shady organizations, shady big nonprofits or maybe governments like the CCP. 
that say, if you want to keep getting money, let's make some changes. And in the first one's free. It's like drugs. They give you the first hit for free. You get $20 million. You build a big facility. you got a mortgage. You've got 30 people you got to pay salaries to. And if you want that next big charitable contribution, you make some big changes. Same thing works in business, though. You open up and you have a multi-billion markets, dollar market sector in, in the Chinese market. Well, all of a sudden, you're going to start rearranging how you do everything in order to keep that going. We well, can't just like raise prices in the West in order to keep your market share going or to keep your profit line up. You've got to figure out how to, you know, navigate across those. So they understand that, and the Chinese, the CCP have understood very, very well that having access to large amounts of, of capital is in fact a potential trap. You get stuck, not even addicted to, it's not even this, you know, money for money's sake, avarice kind of, you know, moral failing. You get stuck in the pursuit of money because if you're actually building and building out, then you actually become dependent upon the the cash inflows that you have, which if they're coming from bad places, hmm. suddenly gain a lot of power over you. Right. Well, thank God we're funded mostly by the public. I don't know if you know this, but there are 330,000 people that donate into yeah. PragerU. I'm holding so I want I want to tell yeah. my CFO, you see, this is why we don't pursue $10 million gifts because, you know, we're, you know, we're lucky. We don't have to be controlled by anybody. Yeah, the logic anybody. has to be that if you get, yeah. if you have somebody offering you a $10 million gift, as much as it's weird to say, or huge access to some gigantic market you could never get into before, and it seems like there's no strings attached is that the strings come with the second hit, not the first mm. hit. And so you treat that money as if it never really existed. It's all bonus money. Or you have to be prepared to fire the donor if you're not willing to be uh, capitulate, it. right? Which is generally, if you know the answer to truth, yeah. I mean, in our case, you know, we're we're religious. And so Dennis and I will say we answer to God, not to our donors. Exactly. And, you know, I think the issue is really whether it's truth or God you have to be completely obsessed and dedicated to that. Otherwise, you will lose your ways. And right. that, you know, If you think of access to the Chinese markets as a gigantic donor, it's the exact same model. But yeah. now we're talking about corporations, not like talking about nonprofits. Like the New York Times and all yeah, these other companies. Sure. Yeah. Well, all of this stuff is very frightening and horrifying, which I promised at the opening of our, our uh, conversation that you're very, very funny. <laughs> so I want to bring up something that made me laugh hysterically, which is one of your... Um, research papers that you've submitted and actually got published, and that is the dog one. Yeah. I just thought it was the funniest thing. Could you just remind our, me how? Yeah, remind me how that goes. It was our undoing. It was too funny. Is the problem? <laughs> so in the process, and this all does tie in because essentially all the studies that are saying that we have to degrow get called into question because of this dog paper. Uh, that's going to be a controversial statement to make, but really that is the question after. The grievance studies affair after the abuses with the official line from public health of COVID. The question is, when they tell you we're in a, say, climate crisis and we have to degrow, how do you know? Based on what? Oh, well, there's these studies. Done by who, right? It's like, well, who does the studies? Well, they're all in universities or nonprofits or government entities. It's like, I, how do I trust any of this? And so that's really one of the things we we're trying to achieve writing these papers is how do you trust any of this? So what we did was we wrote these papers. It's meant to be funny, they're meant to show that ridiculous things, and this dog park paper really took the cake. It was actually the first one that got accepted. We wrote 20 papers over the course of the 2017-18. It was split over about a year, July to June or thereabouts. And we wrote a whole bunch of these things. This was one of the papers that we were just swinging for the fences with what we wrote. And so the original idea was 
we said that, you know, for feminism, that we should train men the way that we train dogs out of like obedience manuals. And then I was talking to Peter and Peter has some dogs. They live in Portland and he goes to the dog park because if you're in a city and you have dogs, you have to go to the dog park. And I was like, well, you have all this experience going to the dog park. Let's just build it around the dog park. And he wrote the first draft. And it was insane. What he wrote. And so I said, okay. And we beefed it up and made it stupider and we wrote it. So it ends up, what's it called? Human reactions to queer performativity and rape culture yeah. in dog parks in Portland, Oregon or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did I get it? Yeah. Yeah, you did. It's a lot of fancy words. So what we said is that the way that it essentially works is that, you know, dogs get up to no good at the dog park, uh, which is to say that they rape each other, which is to say that actually they told us we're not dogs. So we like the dog's perspective. So we don't know when it's a rape and when it's a wanted what we call humping incidents. So there's dog humping incidents at the dog parks. There's dog fights and all of these things. The dogs are being dogs. And so we claim that we sat outside at the dog park in Portland, Oregon, three different dog parks in Portland, Oregon, over the course of a year for 1,000 hours, but never in the heavy rain. Now, if you just keep a work week, you know, a regular five, five days a week, work a week, that's like four hours a day every day at the dog park or something like that. It's insane how much time that is. Never in the heavy rain in Portland. It, somehow we got a thousand hours. And so we said that we watched dogs engage in dog behavior, especially dog humping incidents, and tried to figure out when they were and were not rapes for canine rape culture being the thing that we're studying. But what we're really interested in is the human reactions. How did people react to seeing dogs humping each other? What if it was a male dog humping another male dog? What if it was a male dog humping a female dog? Well, how do men and women react differently? So, of course, we said that women were horrified by all of it. And we said that men, when they saw that it was a straight dog humping incident, were like, get him, get him, boy. You know, and they're all into it. Like, yeah, <laughs> get some. But when it was a gay dog rape, they were horrified and they like beat their dog with sticks and stuff like this. And so they really weren't down with the with gay dog sex, but they were really, really okay with straight dog sex. And we said we can learn a lot about human rape culture by watching the way that people react to the dog. So we said a thousand hours in the dog park, slightly under 10,000 dogs, we said, but slightly fewer than 10,000 dogs, which is ridiculous. There's usually like 30 dogs at any given dog park because the same families over and over. So said that we had to know if they were straight dog, dog rapes or, or gay ones. So we inspected the dog's genitals. The peer reviewers wanted to know how you protected the dog's privacy while inspecting their genitals. And we said we just cool. didn't record their 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 name. Like wow, the dog they name. really went in there into the details oh, with you yeah. guys. They like took it fully seriously. Oh, completely seriously. And then we we said that we took all this data and we passed it through the lens of black feminist criminology and concluded that we need to train men the way that we train dogs because dog parks, urban dog parks, are petri dishes of canine rape culture. And we said that they are rape condoning spaces. Just like nightclubs. That was the entire bridge to people. My just God. like nightclubs. Oh and so therefore we need to, if it's politically feasible, we need to leash men, shock collars, yell at them, obedience training, the whole nine yards. And this paper was accepted for publication by the leading feminist geography journal called Gender, Place, and Culture, and given special recognition for excellence and scholarship in the field of feminist geography. They took it extremely seriously. And they were they were very very complimentary of this of this stunningly important piece of work. What was your reaction when the study actually went through and they accepted it? Well, it turns out that of all things, <laughs> we were on video when that happened. So we had contrived, sort of, not really contrived. We'd we'd gone out to Portland and contrived for all four of us working on this together to be there at the same time. So there were. 
the three of us, it's me and Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose. And we contrived to do some events at Portland State, so the three of us would be there. And we also had Mike Nana was doing a documentary, and that was the contrived part. And he was actually staying with Pete at the time in Portland. So we had our documentary filmmaker. We were going to get some footage. We were going to do some interviews. We were going to just kind of like make a game plan for the coming year, sit down, and we cooked up these events so that we would all be there and could do it. And it turns out that the dog park paper got accepted while we were doing one of the events. We were doing an event at Portland State called Is Intersectionality a Religion? They're sponsored by Turning Point and the College Republicans. Get back to the house. And there I have an email. I check my email. And I'm like, Mike, get your camera. And uh, he comes back. And it's all on camera how we reacted. We talked about it. I read the email out loud to them on camera. It's unbelievable how lucky we got to get this on film. And we were sitting there. And Peter and Helen were gratuitously happy from the drinks and laughing their heads off. And I'm laughing just because it's funny. We were reading the peer-reviewed comments into the camera. We were reading parts of the paper into the camera, laughing, tears streaming down our faces. You can't understand what we're saying because we're, we're like, laughing oh my so God, hard. They accepted this nonsense. That's right. And so then the next day, in this cold light of morning, his sobriety sets in. We're walking down the street in the nice, beautiful, like, oak trees or whatever they are in Portland, the beautiful streets. We're walking down the street talking we're like that paper is going to go out and people are going to know it it's, it's fake and so we knew that at that point the clock is ticking we're going to get caught this paper is too stupid they're going to publish it somebody's going to notice and that's exactly what happens this paper turned out to be our undoing too and it turns out this is really important for people to realize because we're talking about the crisis right our professional classes completely lost our academics completely lost it wasn't any of those that figured out the paper was messed up what figured it out was a college student working for campus reform who wouldn't leave it alone. This little, as I mean, she's very nice, but we called the whole outfit, sorry, grub journalism. It's like it's just grubbing up stuff out of the ground. And she's a stuff. non-woke kid. She's a non-woke ki college kid is the one who's like, this must be fake. Right. And she digs on it and digs on it and digs on it. But because it's in campus reform, nobody pays attention. Yeah. And then along comes a journalistic trick. Nobody's paying attention to your story. What do you do? You pull a favor with, or you call in a favor with a higher ranking journalist. She calls her friend, writes for the Wall Street Journal. She thought there was Jillian uh, Melchior. She uh, thought there was merit to the story. So she started doing proper, you know, with the weight of the Wall Street Journal behind her, uh, started doing proper due diligence, called the academic journal, started asking questions. And then we got an email saying, you know, the Wall Street Journal's asking questions. We need you to prove your identity. And we're like, oh, no, it's all done. Oh, my Everything's gosh. Everything's gone to so crap. So our side, the logical common sense side, found it and exposed you A guys. That's so interesting. A college student majoring yeah. in Good journalism who is on our side was able yeah. to see through this. The professional journalists tricked. The professional academics tricked. Well, you know, no it gives me hope that young people, if we actually set them straight and don't send them through the washer and inoculate them, mm -hmm. there is still hope. Like, people still have brains. Oh, it's yeah. just they need to not be brainwashed with the nonsense. That's right. Well, it's it's really interesting because how that, did they, I'm dying to know, how did they react? The people the, who gave you their, what is it, the rural award or the, oh, they the were, certification? They were, you know, I, <laughs> Your I honestly feel bad about this because we did lie to them and it, we tricked them and they were hurt. Like their <laughs> trust had been betrayed. I don't like to betray anybody's trust. Mm. Um, I mean, we had our limits. We were doing a, a probe to find out what was possible, yeah. but they were, they reacted to hurt. 
we trusted you, blah, blah, yeah. blah. We went to bat for you. We argued. I guess oh. she had argued with the with a journalist. She had written me this email saying there's a white right-wing conspiracy mm. against us or whatever. And I was mm. thinking, oh, man. So I feel bad, but they were re- they reacted with hurt. Yeah, because but it's their religion. They didn't and react. Like, it's like you poked a hole in their religion. Yeah, they didn't react responsibly. They didn't say, wow, there's something wrong here. We must be doing something wrong. Right. They pretended largely, they pretended it didn't happen. A couple of the editors made statements that were a paragraph long when it first came out. And we're talking, this thing was in, in the print editions of over 500 newspapers. Wow. It was on the front page of the New York Times, lands us on Joe Rogan. I mean, the media around this thing was insane. Wow. And they made two public sentences or paragraphs or something like that. They they pretended it didn't happen, mm. except that it was like we're very hurt by the fact that, you know, whatever. That, so the academia p- expressed that we had, had lied to them and it hurt their feelings and they put their heads in the sand and they changed nothing except they suggested that they're going to check people's IDs before they publish mm-hmm. papers in the right. future. But they'll still uh, publish bogus studies. Oh, they're still publishing. Sure. Uh, they're I mean, publishing yeah. them in medical journals. They're for publishing sure. them even more than they ever were before. Yeah. Okay. I want to play I want to play a fun game with you. This is really hard, by the way. It's the hardest thing I expect people to do, okay. which is, you know, we have this issue in our culture that we've been talking about where, you know, they have robbed words of their true meaning, which creates this entire blur of common sense. Uh-huh. So you have been, you know, really good about clarifying and studying these difficult terminologies and 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 really clarifying this brain mush that has been thrown at us. Yeah, I speak so, wokish. Yeah, you do. You speak wokish and you clarify wokish. Somebody which, said that <laughs> I'm the Rosetta Stone for the woke, woke language. Woke? Yeah. Okay. So here's the game. It is a Rosetta Stone reaction game. I'm going to give you about one to two sentences about each of these different words. It's very tempting. You're going to want to go into broader explanations, but to win the game, brevity is king. Okay. Okay. Ready. Uh, SEL. Brainwashing. Which, by the way, is social emotional learning. Yeah. Social emotional learning is brainwashing. Critical pedagogy. Critical theory of education. So using education as an excuse to do political radicalization. Explain critical in front of every one of these words, because the word critical, I think, is, is so critical. I win the game because now you're asking me to explain uh, one? I know. There I you already go. got you. Okay. But okay, it has no. to, be, to win the game, it has to be clear. <laughs> so there's actually a paper that was written in 2017 in the same journal, uh, Hypatia, that we wrote some of our papers for, uh, not the dog paper, though. And they wrote the difference between critical thinking and critical pedagogy very specifically. And they say that critical thinking is about something called epistemic adequacy, which is fancy academic speak for knowing what you're talking about and why you what you're saying is true, right? It's about soundness and validity of arguments. It's about gathering evidence. That's critical thinking. It's being skeptical until you're proved. Critical theory or critical pedagogy, on the other hand, they explicitly say comes from the Frankfurt School of Neo-Marxism and is centered on examining power dynamics and how power dynamics are used to perpetuate inequality. So critical pedagogy or critical theory is based off of explicitly based. It's not critical theory, thinking. Critical thinking, in fact, is bad in this regard. Mm -hmm. It is understanding how power plays into everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, Anti-racist. That is a race communist. What do you think about the word racism? The word racism when the left uses it, means something they want to control using race as the excuse. Mm. 
That's what the idea of systemic racism is about. They think that there's a system of power. Racism is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And everything in society is organized around how race creates structures of inequality and so on, which has nothing to do with whether or not, you know, I look at your skin color and think you're a better or worse person because of it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of skin color, colorblind. Yeah, colorblind is bad. That means that you don't see color, which means that you're pretending you don't see color, which means that you're ignore you're using this as an excuse to ignore the structural implications of racism. You don't think being colorblind is bad. Being colorblind they, is that. Yeah, I'm just using, I'm speaking. I'm telling you the you're wokeish. speaking wokeish. That's the wokeish. Right. Colorblind is bad from their perspective. Colorblind is uh, what we should really aspire to in a uh, system where we see people for the content of their characters and quality of their merits. Right. This is one of my opening speeches here. I'm breaking our game, but one of my opening speeches every single year. So those who worked here for 13 years have heard this, you know, many times is that I don't care about your gender. I don't care about your last name. I don't care about the color of your skin. If you work hard and think critically, you'll do very well. And that is effectively the American dream. Yeah, that's white supremacy culture right there, according yeah. to the left. Yeah, I mean, I just broke all wokish uh, uh, yeah. rules, right? Um, we talked a little bit about degrowth, but how would you summarize it in one sentence? It's shrinking the economy to uh, put it into a communist state. Mm-hmm. ESG, environmental, environmental social, social and governance. governance. Yeah. yeah. So that is a cartel logic that allows the, uh, say, largest investment finance institutes like BlackRock and Vanguard to be able to condition the entire business environment to do whatever they want uh, on the pretext of environmental uh, responsibility, social responsibility, and best practices and governance. Mm-hmm. Critical theory. Critical theory is the, well, the simple thing to say, I guess, because we're playing the game, is it is denouncing everything you want to control until you control it by using systems of power for the denunciation. Mm -hmm. More formally, critical theory is the idea that the very terms of our society uh, cannot produce an ideal society. So we have to question and, and challenge and criticize every aspect of the existing society. And if people want to challenge that one, it's a direct quote from Max Horkheimer, so that who created the critical theory. And the, the quote is him explaining why he created the critical theory. So they're going to have a hard time saying that that's false. So is the idea to basically dismantle and break everything down and just start from scratch? It's that the existing system cannot produce the ideal system from within whatsoever. So you have to get you have to. He said that it is not possible to describe the ideal or good society from the terms of the existing society, but it is possible to criticize those aspects of the existing society that we don't like and want to change. And that's the, the guy who created critical theory in an interview in 1969 explaining why he created critical theory was that's what he said about it. So, yes. Not speaking wokish, speaking Lindsay, mm -hmm. Western civilization. What's your reaction to that? Western civilization is the most, speaking Lindsay, is the most successful uh, system of, of governance and productivity that, that humans have yet devised. It maximizes liberty and agency uh, while installing a conflict resolution scheme that minimizes interpersonal violence and even political violence. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of, of that. I mean, we could say it's the combination like Ben Shapiro does of Jerusalem and Athens and Rome because mm -hmm. he always leaves out the law part, but that matters. So rule of law we have. We have the, the supremacy of, of reason, even though we're bad at it. And then we have the, 
you know, Judeo-Christian moral structure uh, guiding our steps through that path, uh, through that, that set of circumstances. And speaking wokish, what would Western civilization mean to them? Oh, that's a system of oppression designed to keep people who don't agree with the the premises of, of Western civilization from being able to rise to positions of, of authority and, and power within. It's just a system of power that was created to to marginalize people that they don't like. Democracy. Democracy means speech. communism and woke. So under Lindsay speech. I mean, democracy in like reality means that people are given a political voice at the ballot box. Uh, probably also includes a lot of what we have in our First Amendment, the freedom to uh, particularly not necessarily the freedom of religion, but the freedom of speech and the, the right to gather and petition the government for redress of grievances are probably part of a democratic system that's functioning. So it's a form of government in which the people themselves are empowered to direct the system of government. In the United States, we have the idea that a just government is instituted amongst men with the consent of the governed. So that would be another way to do it, uh, to frame it. Another word that we're hearing a lot or term is queer theory. Yeah, that is a war against the normal, or you could say that it is a deconstructive Marxist theory that sets itself in opposition to norms and expectations uh, or anything that it considers to be dominant whatsoever. But it is um, the idea that the normal is a form of uh, bourgeois private property. I'm a normal person. I get to say what it means to be normal. Therefore, I get to exclude the freaks, the perverts, the deviants, and the queers. And so queer theory is a Marxist theory that seeks to overthrow and abolish that form of bourgeois private property called normalcy. The idea that anything gets to be considered normal in society is considered a power dynamic controlled by the people who declared themselves normal. Is there any connection between that and gay rights? Because they claim that there is. Um, no, yes, no, a little bit. They were fellow travelers in the 80s and 90s, but they've had very different goals and very different objectives all along. If you actually read the book St. Foucault, which is uh, by David Halperin, which is the book in which queer gets its definition. So it's like the first book in queer theory that really gives you the definition of queer theory. There's a huge amount of time dedicated in the book to showing that queer theory has nothing to do with gay identity whatsoever. The kind of quippy phrase they have is that gay identity has to do with what gayness is, whereas queer theory has to do with what gayness does. Well, they mean that in terms of political activism, your kind of mm. best example would be Pete Buttigieg, who is currently Secretary Mayor Pete and um, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg who is gay, as everybody knows, and he wears suits to work. And so there are articles saying that he didn't speak with the gay voice because he passes. Pete Buttigieg, there was an article that came out about him that said that he may sleep with men, but he's not gay. And it's because he doesn't speak with the queer voice. And so you see this theme repeated throughout virtually all of the literature in queer theory is that it is completely distinct from the identities. In fact, they have a concept. You've heard of heteronormativity, mm -hmm, I assume. Mm -hmm. That's a big word for them. There is also homonormativity. I assume you have not heard of that word. Homonormativity does not mean that homosexuality becomes the norm for society. It means that homosexuals are considered normal in society, and it's very bad and, and woke. And queer theory is very against... Oh, my God. The I can't even, like, keep track so, of no, all it of is, this stuff. It is very against gay acceptance and normalization. Okay, Final word, uh -huh. objectivity. 
What's your reaction to that word in the society that we're living in right now? So they think that objectivity doesn't exist. They think that it's a myth that people use to declare that um, their claim to knowledge is better than some other claim to knowledge. To say something is objectively true is to deny the subjective experience of somebody else who might challenge that claim from a subjective perspective. Their claim, though, is that there is no such thing as objective knowledge. All knowledge is a combination of objective and subjective analysis at the same time. There's always a person involved. There's always a political process involved. And so objectivity doesn't exist. And it's, in fact, not an ideal even to be strived for. That's why math is racist. That's why math is racist. That's why two plus two equals four is a hegemonic narrative that denies that it may have other values at some times. You name it. Okay. The world is upside down, James Lindsay. Thank you for trying to save it. Yeah. Uh, This is a fascinating conversation for anybody who wants to learn more from you. You have a podcast. You are a prolific writer. You have a bunch of books. What else can people do to learn from you? I mean, that's kind of the list. I have a podcast. I go on a ton of podcasts. The the amount of material that's out there that I've put out is is pretty incredible. I do a lot of interviews. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of recording of my own. The website and my social media, which is at Conceptual James, the website is newdiscourses.com, are kind of the best places to get started. And you're super active on Twitter, X. Twitter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I so- refuse. You refuse to call it? Okay, we're going to have to have another meeting about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. This was great. My pleasure.